Welcome to Context, I'm Lorna Duick. In our deeply divided and violent world, bullying, racism, and hatred trickles down from the generation and spills out onto our streets, into our schools, destroying the fabric of our societies. Today on Context, we take a look at how the roots of hatred are growing across Canada. We'll get some answers today on making a better tomorrow. For a month, we've been trying to, to get this dealt with. Everyone failed, my son, even I did. I tried to save him and I couldn't, I couldn't get to him in time. A heart-wrenching admission there from Devin Selvey's mother responding after the tragic stabbing of her 14-year-old son. Bullying moved to murder charges against a 14 and a 16-year-old. Detective Paul Corrigan is from the Hamilton Police Hate Crimes Unit. And Detective, uh, before we get into hate crimes, I just want to um, ask how Hamilton Police Services are, are reacting when you have a mother saying, everybody has failed my son. It's a tragedy, the death of Devon. It's affected everybody, including in the police department. Uh, you know, many police officers have children of similar age, so we, we've taken it very badly too. There is an ongoing investigation, so it's difficult for me to comment on that. Um, I know the school board is doing a full investigation, also uh, the police department is doing a full investigation to find exactly what happened and what factors were responsible for this horrible, tragic event. It has been a wake-up call that has uh, got me thinking now about hate crimes. Yeah. And, and I didn't realize Hamilton, as a microcosm of Canada, is leading. It's got the unfortunate distinction of being Canada's city with the most hate crimes. Yeah. This is, is your uh, beat uh, that you've got to figure this out. Um, tell us just how you are defining hate crimes. So hate crime is defined by the criminal code as a criminal offence, so it has to be a criminal offence like assault, a robbery, intimidation, if it's in the criminal code and we can prove that there's a hate bias aspect to it, a hate bias motivation behind it, then it becomes a hate crime. It's getting very public. Yeah. Since last October, every week you see this in front of Hamilton City Hall. Yeah. Since last October, uh, yellow vests, anti-immigrant group with ties to extremist groups like Soldiers of Odin, Proud Boys, this footage, these folks um, have, have been very disruptive in Hamilton. We haven't known what to do about it. The mayor's been criticized, didn't go fast enough to shut it down. This is a free speech issue also. Yeah. What are you dealing with here with this kind of demonstrations? So with the demonstration, first of all, it costs a lot of resources, a lot of police resources, a lot of people are brought in on overtime to cover to make sure that the peace is kept, because that's the number one priority as a police department, public safety, and keeping the peace. Uh, my job, as I've been there most Saturdays since last October, is to monitor the event and make sure that nobody breaches the criminal code. Uh, under free speech, you can say what you like, as long as you don't cover, break off section 30, 319 of the criminal code. So 319 says that you can't advocate for hate. So we monitor these signs, we monitor what people are saying, and up to this point, we haven't had anybody step over that line because people know what the law is and they know on which side of it to stay. It is far more vitriolic than I ever expected to hear on Canadian streets. Yeah. Who are the perpetrators? Well, we don't know. I mean, the rise in populism worldwide, we have it all over the world where people are becoming more... Uh, um, more easier to say things on social media which wasn't there before so we find that people are saying things which normally you wouldn't have said in public so I think it's given people a license to think that they can say what they want and in effect they can I mean we have section 2 of the Charter on Rights and Freedoms which allows people 
freedom of expression, freedom of thought, freedom of religion. So it's not against the law to say, I don't like you. Hate is not a crime. Do you know what kind of numbers we're talking about in Hamilton? How many are in these hate groups? It, it makes, it's, it's different. Like some weeks we get five people turning up there, other weeks we've had up to 100 people. So it, it differs 50, 60, 70 to 100 on really busy Saturdays. Other times we've had five to 10. And they just yell yep. this disagreement yep. and it is over. Uh, um, are there groups named? Like is it anti-immigrant? Is it anti-black? Is it anti-gay? No, it's not anti-black. It's not anti-gay. It's um, some groups don't want immigration. They want um, uh, restraints on how many people can come into Canada. Other people are against the federal government. People are against um, against the cutting of pipelines, they want, um, you know, jobs for Canadians, that type of thing. A lot of it is nationalism, so people are, um, have this idea that uh, to be Canadian you have to be a white European, we get that type of thing. But overt racism comments, uh, homophobic comments, we haven't had. We've had people report that people have said certain things to them, go back to your own country, things like that, but generally we have had nothing of a criminal code nature that we can actually arrest somebody for. Okay, Detective Paul Corrigan, thank you for being on the streets every Saturday to monitor that, but stay with us because I want to bring in a Hamilton activist in on this conversation. Not the kind of Canada we expect to see. We're going to continue with our building community here and a conversation with Detective Corrigan and an activist from Hamilton, Kojo Dampty, the director of the Centre for Civic Inclusion. You were both involved at that event. Kojo, why did you go? That was a People Party of Canada uh, presentation last month in Hamilton. Why did you go? Yes, we were there to support the many residents that uh, disagree with some of the language and some of the uh, rhetoric that has been displayed from the People's Party of Canada. So we were there to support the many residents and also uh, ensure that residents' voices are heard. Um, Detective, I didn't expect um, that an elderly couple could be shouted at, called Nazi scum, and that's, that's just harassment, right? That's not a crime. Uh, it is a crime. It's a crime of harassment. And if you stay in somebody's way, it's also a mischief. If you stop them blocking them going into a building, that can also be a charge of mischief under the criminal code. So you were there, as you have been since last October, at yep. every kind of public protest that is, in my view, very hate-filled. It's yep. not good neighborliness. No. And w what, why can't it just be shut down, go home? Everybody, you're gone. Freedom of speech. Section 2 of the Charter on Rights and Freedom. Everybody has a right within very small limits, there's some limits to that speech, to uh, protest. And people turn up, they want to, they disagree with what's being said, and then other people turn up to counter-protest. Everybody has the right to do that. Kojo, is it getting out of hand in Hamilton? Should more be done? Yes, I think it's getting out of hand. Uh, I, I would say that, yes, everyone has uh, freedom of expression. However, there are limitations to that freedom of expression, especially when it comes to issues around hate. Uh, hate is experienced uh, from black indigenous people of color. So they understand what it feels like when somebody uh, uses a racial slur or somebody makes a comment that is dehumanizing. What are the limits though? What the, the detective is telling us it has to be actually a crime has to have been committed. Yes, and, and I would say that is, the limit, that, that is the limitation and that is the point that we're trying to, we're trying to solve. 
We can't wait for it to be a crime before we say it's a hate crime. So if, if, if someone is going to harass someone, use dehumanizing language, we can't wait for, for some violent act to happen before we charge that individual with a hate crime. And this goes back again to what black, indigenous people of color have been saying, that in this country there's a history of racism, and that racism leads to racist policy, leads to marginalization, leads to oppression. And so that is why it's important for us to listen to what residents are saying so that we can change that perception that... What would that you like the police to do? And I, I so you, we can't wait until a crime is mm -hmm. what Kojo Kojo's saying. absolutely right. So what we do is we have the criminal offenses that we record, but we also record incidents. So mm -hmm. no criminal offense, and some police departments don't do this. In Hamilton, we encourage people to come forward if a racial slur is used, or if a homophobic uh, slur, or if an Islamophobic slur is used, to call the police, and we record it, and we try and identify who's responsible for it. And then we go speak to these people. A number of times I've gone to speak to suspects in incidents like this, even though it's not a criminal offence. And we counsel them on what they've said and how inappropriate it is. But the important part of that is that we record that information that if down the road there is a violent incident, as Kojo said, we now have proof that there's a history of racism or homophobia or Islamophobia for that person. But Kojo, we never used to see this on our streets. <coughs> if we didn't have to have police duty on every night, since every weekend since October, it's, it's, it's worse, isn't it, Kojo? Uh, I, w I would say, I wouldn't say it's worse. I would say that now it's out in the open. I think uh, black indigenous people of color has, have been experiencing this since 1876, right? No. But then now it's become uh, mainstream. It is in the political discourse. So now we're seeing that in the, in, uh, in the public sphere or in the public discourse. So that is why uh, for some individuals in Canada, it might seem like, where is this coming from? But again, this started in 1876 when uh, Sir John A. MacDonald called indigenous people savages, right? And that is the, that is the root of all these issues around hate. It is, it is indifference, and that's where we are. All right. Well, it's time to take it back to our homes. Thank you for uh, the wake-up call that you both have been. Thank you for your good work uh, on the front lines of preventing hate. Thank you. When you see someone that you know is being bullied, whether the bullying has taken place at that time when you see them or not, it doesn't matter. Reach out to them. Give them love. Give them friendship. Give them somebody they can trust. That's Kevin Ellis speaking at Devin Selvey's vigil just after that 14-year-old boy was murdered in cold blood in front of his mother outside of his school. Kevin is here today with Kyle Scott. Both are on a mission to fight bullying. This is about hatred, bullying that ends in murder. Kyle, why was it so important that uh, you get involved in that school? Uh, to get involved, is, there's, uh, this isn't the only case I find that happens. We need, we need to have a voice for these ones that can't speak up, and we want to be there to be that voice for these kids that need. I didn't expect it to be not only a biker, Kevin. You are part of a biker gang. You're part of the Knights of Templar. Uh, a very unique movement of the Christian church. And uh, you insisted, and at the mother's consent and request, come on, Hamilton, we've got to pull together for this. Why? 
Absolutely. The, the whole idea behind what we did was we had to bring the community together that was in a rage, angry and out for justice and the old term of out for blood. And I had to try and reel that in as a community uh, advocate and someone that loves their country. It was important to get everybody to find peace, love and, and unity at a time of, of great anger and, and mistrust. There's a lot of problems about why the school didn't catch this, who said, he said, all of these different things. But both of you, uh, you Kyle, you've been in to fight for your nieces and nephews on bullying peace. There's a family problem here. What are you discovering, Kyle? I find that it's, that it's starting within the homes. It's starting, there's a lot that has changed within the homes of these children. Um, and the respect and values have definitely gone a different way than what they were prior to this. You've got a bullying campaign with the t-shirts. It's active both on the U.S. side, the Canada side, and yet we've heard t-shirts aren't enough. What is enough? We, we need to have a voice, and we need, we need to go out there, and we need to stand for, for, for this, and we need to not let this go on deaf ears is what was one of the biggest things that I find is, is making sure this stays at the forefront and it just doesn't go away. Okay, so first in families, uh, Kevin, what do families need, and why are you then moving this into law? The message to families is quite clear, and that is one, to stop automatically assuming your child is innocent of bullying and don't get angry when you go to the school. We have to teach our children empathy once again. It's something that we seem to have lost sight of. We have to love our neighbors, love our friends, and love our community. And the parents, when they attend the schools now, when they're called in because their child's accused of bullying, for the most part, the majority, a high majority, come in angry and anger does not fix anything. Because they think my child couldn't be the problem. Absolutely, they come in and demanding that their child's not the problem and the child's with them when this is happening. I've sat there with the school liaison officers and listened to parents scream at the top of their lungs. They have no business accusing their child of doing such a thing. And the kids sitting right there watching their parents act like that. Who's the bully and where are they learning it? It starts at home. You both are getting a lot of attention, um, and uh, we, we didn't expect we would need biker gang guys <laughs> to say, Hamilton School District, behave, behave. But you also want to make this a criminal code campaign around Devi, Devin's death. What are you looking for? Essentially, what I want to do is I want to implement change into the Criminal Code of Canada that first and foremost takes it out of the Crown's hands on when they decide that a case of a juvenile acting like an adult and committing a murder or a crime, uh, it should be automatic. There should be a set rule that's set in place that says if they murder, if they, if they shoot and hurt someone, it automatically becomes an adult crime. And I also want to set in place rules for strict bullying that gets put into the criminal code as of opposed to being at the discretion of the school boards. I want it to become part of the laws of our country so that we can follow the laws that, that our country has, has laid out for us. As Christ taught us, we are held accountable to the laws of the land and as Christians. And as the average person, we must follow those rules. All right. Well, and you're pledging to the family to do this in Devon's memory. Uh, all the best to both of you, and we're going to have you back uh, a little later in the show uh, just to talk about what can be done spiritually to shape these families and these homes. Beautiful. More after this. Thank you. I want to say, you know, can we, can we all get along? Can we, can we get along? Um... 
The late Rodney King there, whose plea for peace echoed around the world after the 1992 race riots of Los Angeles. Well, how much have we been learning from the U.S. on hate crimes? Our next guest researches hate crime in Canada. And Professor Ifram Chaudhry from the McEwen University in Edmonton joins us now. Uh, Professor Chaudhry, thank you. What, what is the difference between hate crime in Canada versus America? Uh, well, the motivating factors are the same in terms of uh, a real or perceived hatred uh, or bias towards an identifiable group um, based on usually social identity factors. But uh, the difference, I would say, between the two countries is how we have a standardized, uh, somewhat standardized approach to hate crime uh, in the States, because uh, in the 1990s, uh, there was the Hate Crime Stats uh, Collection Act that the U.S. had administered that um, encourages all law enforcement to document and report hate crimes to a national standardized database. Uh, whereas in Canada, we don't have that same kind of national act, let's say, compelling uh, law enforcement to report and document, but we still have, you know, uh, through the Uniform Crime Report, uh, annual hate crime uh, data available through Stats Canada. So how the data is collected and information is captured, the differences are there between kind of the legislated approach in the U.S. and the non-legislated approach in Canada. Um, so that's one of the starting points for sure. And, and it is a problem, isn't it, that we don't have that same kind of organized approach nationally to how we collect that. Is it because this is newer to us or it's covered already by the criminal code or why isn't it uh, uniform across the country? I think there hasn't been a strong of a onus, I would say, nationally uh, to have a standardized definition. Uh, I mean, across Canada, each police service has very similar variations of the definition around what a hate crime is. But what that ends up doing is it leaves a lot of flexibility and discretion uh, for officers to address it in, you know, the best way for they with the information that they have. Who are the hate groups in Canada? What are they called? Uh, most recently, you know, you have uh, variations of the Soldiers of Odin. Uh, you have in Alberta a group called the Three Percenters. Uh, you've also had a group uh, who aren't as active as, as much uh, now, but in the mid-2010s, uh, 2012, 2015, uh, Blood and Honor. So we've had a lot of recent activity around some of the groups that, you know, always kind of house around different forms of white identity and white nationalism. And oftentimes the biggest uh, rallying cry between the groups uh, does uh, evolve around immigration and anti-immigration specifically. And so I think that's some of the conversations we've seen over the last number of uh, years here in Canada, where, you know, some of the groups that are connected to even the Yellow Vest movement, who for the most part just are trying to share uh, their, um, you know, disgust around the current government. Uh, some of these hate groups are gravitating towards some of those movements because there is an element of uh, the Yellow Vest movement wanting to look at uh, immigration and, you know, starting to regulate even further than we do now around who we let into, into Canada. And so that narrative really speaks loudly to some of the folks on the right-wing extremism and white supremacy side, uh, because a lot of those folks are very, very anti-immigrant and anti-racialized immigrant, uh, to be quite bluntly. Okay. So we're not talking tens of thousands in these groups. We're talking maybe less than 10,000 all across Canada in these five different groups you've mentioned. 
I would say even less than that. In 2015, there was a, a national study that uh, came out uh, through Barbara Perry, who's the leading hate crime researcher in Canada. And I think she was able to gather there's a, you know about 500 uh, active across Canada. But when you break it down by province, there's maybe 10 to any range from 10 to 20, uh, depending on activity levels during that time frame that you're seeing in any given uh, jurisdiction. So the numbers individually are pretty small, but collectively, I think there's an impact. Uh, more broadly, the online factor, of course, does provide you know different ideologies to manifest themselves as well. All right, Irfan Chowdhury, hate crime researcher at McEwen University, thank you for joining us. Thank you. A lot of the schools have forced you out, dear Lord, but that is not where we stand. As a community, we understand that there is power in Christ and that there is power in believing in the Lord. A prayer there from Kevin Ellis, who was leading the vigil for Devin Selvey, the 14-year-old boy murdered at his Hamilton High School recently. And uh, Kevin, you talked to us about moving the presence of God into schools where, um, where there's a great need for good teaching on values and what shapes the character. We have two people here from Move-In, founder Nigel Paul and Lindsay Menken. Lindsay, that is your neighborhood. Mm -hmm. You were at that vigil. What did you do to move in the love of God into this kind of neighborhood? Yeah, so I felt called to move into this neighborhood specifically. Um, there wasn't a lot of Bible-believing church presence. Um, and yeah, just saw the need for boundaries to be broken by Jesus. And so that's your home now? That's my that's home. That's your home now. And yes. did you face a little bit of opposition about that? Yes. Actually, when I was telling people I was moving into that neighborhood, almost everybody told me not to move into the neighborhood, that it was the worst. Um, yeah. It isn't. It is a crime hotspot. I'm sure your folks thought like... Like I would think is, are you, are you sure you want to do this? But, mm -hmm. but Nigel Paul, this is actually the movement in Canada of radical, radical Christians. I think we've got three or four of them around the table today. And, and you, you're, you're, you're encouraging people move in with the love of Jesus where there is hatred. Yeah, I think as, as believers and, and even just as human beings, when we see an unsafe neighborhood, we say, okay, we shouldn't move there. But in move in, we move in because it's unsafe and because somebody needs to be there to show the love of Christ to the people who live there. What difference does it make, Lindsay? It's huge. Um, it just, it tells people who may not feel accepted that they are accepted, that you are human and you are loved, that love is possible. Because you break down the I don't know you. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. Or that just the um, messages that society gives about who's valuable, who's not valuable. By moving into a neighborhood, an unsafe neighborhood, to break those boundaries, that I think it, it changes, it can change the entire city. How many neighborhoods are we doing this in Canada, Nigel? Well, worldwide, we're in 85 neighborhoods, uh, 39 cities, and 13 countries. In Canada, 
About uh, 60 of those teams are in Canada. 16. Uh, six zero. Six zero teams are yeah. moved into high trouble neighborhood. What do you think of this? Is this going to be part of the answer to getting some good love of God back into places that need it most? I absolutely think it is. I mean, at the end of the day, you, when people look at me and I walk into somewhere and I'm preaching about God and the first thing they see is a biker, it, it does say volumes to any one of us could be a soldier of Christ or a child of God. And I think that if we all take the time to preach that word and, and try to welcome one another, regardless of race, religion, or color or creed, we can make this world a better place, so yes. Is this like a long-term plan, move in? You're, Lindsay, are you gonna stay long-term in these kind of high-risk neighborhoods, specifically the one you're in? Yes, yeah, I definitely feel called that this neighborhood specifically is where I'll be for a while. And whether I'm a part of move-in or not, that's the lifestyle I choose to live. And what's God doing in you and in your neighbors while you live like this? For me personally, I think when you are the host, um, giving hospitality, I feel like God is showing me hospitality. Like I feel his presence so deeply and that moves me. Um, and just seeing, my, seeing Jesus in my neighbors, I think once you understand that everybody's made in God's image, you can pick out Jesus' traits. And so just encouraging them. Um, yeah, I just, I think when someone nice moves into the neighborhood, like you're not looking at them funny for the way they're dressed. They're just like, whoa, like. <laughs> so Nigel, what's the game plan here? And you actually, you know, as move-in got started under your leadership, you actually had heard God just say those two words, mm -hmm. move in. Yeah. Um, he gave me the vision for move-in before the name, and then he just uh, plunked the name down, and that was it, the, the action, the imperative to move in. And that's the name of our, Have of our movement. Have civic structures noticed this? Because like here we've got, we've focused on a city, Hamilton, that has the highest uh, race-related crime mm -hmm. incident in Canada. Mm -hmm. Have cities noticed that they need help like this, like move in? Has anybody they, civic seen, you know what, this actually could work if we bring in a, a spiritual demographic into neighborhoods that are hurting? I think they're aware of the problem, but they're addressing it from a distance. Uh, I'm reminded of in Toronto where I live, um, uh, a politician went to Jane and Finch, which is a high needs area in Toronto, and he wore a bulletproof vest, which we people in Mouven can't relate to because we live there. And actually my wife and I just had our second baby three weeks ago and we've chosen to live in the neighborhood. And we aren't afraid because we know the people who live there and we've become part of the fabric of the community. But when you're afraid and when you're trying to solve things from, from a distance and when you put on the bulletproof vest to enter a community, it isn't the way to do it. And it certainly isn't the way of Christ to, who moved in. Uh, John 1:14. he dwelt among us and the message paraphrase puts it so refreshingly. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. All right, and that is the solution I'm hearing from all of us, that if we're going to make Canada a place that has more love on the streets than this worry of, of hate crime, we need to move in with love. All right, thank you all. Lindsay, Nigel, Kevin, great, for, great, great to have you with us.
Frontex reported the growth of organized hate groups in Canada today. The web has allowed private hate to publish, and now it's emboldened people into hate in public. Our values are sick. Outer rot is showing us we need inner work, and that is best begun in our homes. We don't need another restriction in the criminal code. This growth in our hate stats is a wake-up call for a behavior code. Neglect spiritual teaching and people miss the inner resource that the Bible says forms our character into love, joy, goodness, and self-control. Not everyone comes by those traits naturally and that's why religious teaching reminds people that God has pathways for our soul to be improved. And let's make sure our homes are the strongest foundation for this teaching. There's more on our website where you can learn more on how to access that. And from all of us at Context, I'm Lorna Duick. Thanks for watching.